Thank you, Gene. We're in Galatians, or Galatians, yeah, Colossians. We're in Genesis, by the way. <clears throat> right there at the beginning of the Bible. Genesis chapter 18, verses 16 to 33. I entitled the message, A Whittle Bit of Mercy. You'll understand as we get, it's a play on words, so I know it's corny. Just, uh, just extend grace to me today. <laughs> <laughs> and some mercy. Just show me some mercy, too. <laughs> Anyhow, Mike Krzyzewski, his decision to remain as coach of the Duke University basketball team rather than to become head coach of the Los Angeles Lakers was influenced in part by an email from Duke student Andrew Humphreys, a 19-year-old biology major. In his email, Humphreys recounted childhood memories of playing basketball in his driveway and pretending to hit the shot that won the national championship for Coach K. He spoke of the pride he felt in being part of the quote-unquote sixth man student body at Duke that fills Cameron Indoor Stadium to root for their team. He closed his message with the impassioned plea, please still be my coach. In a press conference announcing his decision, Shoshesky said that Humphrey's email had moved him to tears and reminded him of the special bond he felt with the Duke students and his players. The coach chose to turn down a $40 million contract offer and stay at Duke, influenced by the petition of a student he didn't even know. The, the, the petition of one student who represented the student body had influenced Coach K. And we will see God's mercy being influenced by one man who represented the people of the plains in this passage of Scripture today. And so as we think about mercy, it's defined as not getting what we deserve. That's the definition for mercy. Not getting what we deserve. When we lived in Missouri, Judy and I attended a church there, and um, one of the uh, people that we attended church with was a state policeman. And um, from time to time, he would stop people that had uh, the fish symbol on the back of their vehicle. So he would always go up, and he would talk to them and say, hey, do you go to church somewhere? And they're like, yeah, yeah, we go to church, and that's great. And, you know, uh, you should maybe watch your influence, you know, and, and your witness for the Lord. You know, you were speeding a little bit there. And, and, um, and so he would say, hey, I'm going to give you a warning, but I, this is how much the citation would cost if I were to give you a citation today. And so he said, I, I'm going to give you a warning. I'm going to show you mercy. But I would like you to take the amount of that citation and give it to your church in an offering on Sunday. Pretty cool, huh? He's like, mercy, but he's like also encouraging them to do something pretty incredible uh, with what that citation would have been. And so I, I, I always appreciated him and, and hearing that story from him. It, uh, instead, of he, he would give them a warning and a challenge, and his hope was that they would learn to represent Jesus Christ well by obeying the speed limit laws and that they would use the mercy extended to them to bless their church. And so I just want you to be thinking about mercy today because we're going to be talking a lot about that. When have you received mercy from someone else? I want you to th just think about that today. When's the last time that you didn't get something that you deserved, right? Like, oh, man, I should have been in trouble for that, and, and, and that person extended mercy to me. And then when have you extended mercy to someone else? I don't know. For me, having children, you have to learn to extend mercy, don't you? <laughs> When you have kids, you're like, otherwise you're going to pull your hair out and lose your mind. But, um, you know, we have to extend mercy to our children a lot of times. And so perhaps one of the most difficult things for human beings to understand about the Lord is his ability to be both loving and just. We only uh, 
Uh, we only want to think about God being loving because his justice means that he has to punish those who are wicked. We don't like to think about that. It's a negative. It brings me down, right? That's what we say. That brings me down. It's difficult for us to comprehend that God can be perfectly loving and perfectly just at the same time, but that's who he is. And the reason we struggle with that concept is that we are incapable of doing that in our humanness. We can't be perfectly loving and perfectly just at the same time. We just fail at it all the time. And so what we're going to learn today from this passage of Scripture is our big idea is that God is both righteous and merciful. Aren't you glad for that today? He's just and he's loving perfectly. And so as we think about that, would you just bow your heads and your hearts with me as we commit this message to the Lord in prayer? Lord, we come to you today, and we're hungry for your word, Lord God. We want to learn from your word. We want to know what you have for us and how you want us to change and be transformed to become more like your son, Jesus. Lord, I pray that that would be accomplished through this message today. Lord, it's your message. It's not mine. I thank you for how you have spoken to me through it this week, how you've transformed me, and I pray, Lord God, that that transformation would take place in the lives of each person that's here today. Lord, would they hear your voice and not mine? It's your word. It's not mine. Lord, your word has power. And so we just ask for that power to be poured out on this, your people today. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Just two points today, and they all start with eyes. So... Insider information we're going to see in verses 16 to 21, and 22 to 33 we're going to see individual intercession. So I didn't work quite as hard this week to come up with those two, you know, the two points with the eyes. So that was God's grace and mercy to me. Insider information, let's look at verses 16 to 21. This is what God's word says. When the men got up to leave, they looked down toward Sodom, and Abraham walked along with them to see them on their way. Then the Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? Abraham will surely become a great and powerful nation, and all nations on earth will be blessed through him. For I have chosen him, so that he will direct his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing what is right and just, so that the Lord will bring about for Abraham what he has promised him. Then the Lord said, The outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is so great and their sins so grievous that I will go down and see if what they have done is as bad as the outcry that has reached me. If not, I will know. And so we see here Abraham getting some insider information about what God's about to do. So these three men are rested and refreshed. They've been refreshed by Abraham's extravagant hospitality that we saw last week. They've been able to rest under the shade trees of, of Mamre, and now they're ready to continue their journey. Now they already knew what they were going to be doing. That's why they were in the region. That's why they're looking down to Sodom at this point. They already knew why they were there. They just did a little side trip to say hello to Abraham, right? And to kind of fill him in a little bit. And we'll see why in just a moment. Abraham continues his hospitality by walking along with them for a period of time. This would have been um, common in that time, in that era. It's perhaps uh, three miles that they walk together as they head toward a city named Vani Naam. This town is three miles east of Hebron and allows for a view into the valley of the Dead Sea that is 18 miles to the south. 
So I have a couple of pictures. Uh, this is a picture uh, probably of the modern-day city in that area. But you see that they're able to kind of see down through the gaps and the valleys and the hills towards the Dead Sea. And then there's another one where they're actually walking down out of that city into the valley. Um, and so this kind of gives you an idea of what it looked like uh, or would have looked like for Abraham and these three men, the Lord and the two angels. And so the Lord and his two angels knew why they were traveling in this region, even though Abraham did not. But that was about to change. We see this internal conversation that's taking place here. The Lord's having this internal conversation with himself concerning whether or not to tell Abraham about the reason why he's in the region. And what we see is the Lord giving two rationales as to why he needs to share with Abraham what's going on. The rationale for telling Abraham, the first one is this, it's because of the divine call and promise. Matthews outlines that for us in his commentary. So this first rationale for telling Abraham is because of his divine call and promise from the Lord. If you go back into Genesis chapter 12, verses 3 and 4, we see what that promise is. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you I will curse, and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So Hamilton brings out in his commentary, to be blessed in this context means to have one who intercedes before God regarding one's destiny, to have one who makes intercession for the transgressor. Boy, is that going to be powerful in just a moment. That's what it means to be blessed. Abraham is blessed by God, and so he's going to be this interceder. Yeah, he's going to intercede. He's going to be the intercessor for the transgressions of the people of of the plain. So again, hang on to that idea as we get to verses 22 to 33. It's a significant concept that we don't want to miss. Abraham will learn justice through what the Lord is about to do. Such a nation has to learn justice beginning with its father, Abraham. The Lord models justice to Abraham in his treatment of the Sodomites. And through this remarkable dialogue, he induces, that's just a big word for brings out and develops. So uh, through this remarkable dialogue, he develops Abraham's integrity. That's Waltke. But there's a second rationale for telling Abraham about his plan, and it's the divine election of the man. Again, Matthews is the one who highlights that for us. He says, I have chosen him. This is an important word. The Hebrew word for chosen literally means known. I know him. He's he's my friend. That's what the Lord's saying here. It means that Abraham and the Lord have an intimate relationship. Abraham is the friend of God. The prophet Jeremiah understood this intimate friendship with the Lord, as we see in Jeremiah chapter 1, verse 5. Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I set you apart. I appointed you as a prophet to the nations. Like, Jeremiah understood that. The Israelites experienced this intimate relationship with the Lord, as Amos points out in chapter 3, verse 2 of the book that he wrote. You only have I chosen of all the families of the earth. Therefore, I will punish you for all your sins. Again, these were chosen people. He knew the Israelites. Jesus' disciples also experienced a close personal relationship with the Lord. We see that in John chapter 15, verse 15. It says this, I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I have called you friends for everything that I learned from my Father I have made known to you. So John 15, 15 tells us that the disciples had this intimate relationship with the Lord. The Lord knew the kind of man that Abraham was, which is why he chose him. He knew how Abraham would handle the information about the plans that he had for Sodom, about meeting out justice for the wicked. And we see that here in the word direct. 
The Lord could trust Abraham to direct his children and household concerning justice. The word direct means to command, to charge. This is what Moses did when he was given the law. He commanded, he charged the Israelites to obey it. Now, Wolke says, There is no record of a school in Israel before the late intertestamental period. Families were the source of all education, including trades. Homeschooling is not new, by the way. It would happen way back in the ancient Near East, right? <laughs> they were teaching their kids what they needed to know. Abraham was going to teach his children and those in his household the way of the Lord. And the way that he was going to do that is by modeling for them what is right and just. And so the Lord is, is teaching Abraham what justice looks like here. I like what Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 6 to 7 says. It says, these, these commands that I give you today are to be upon your hearts and press them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. That's all the time. It's a lifestyle. It's not just a, a certain day of the week thing. We should be teaching our children about the things of God all the time. The writer of Proverbs says, Listen, my son, to your father's instruction, and do not forsake your mother's teaching. Proverbs chapter 1, verse 8. So we come to this first principle today, and it's for fathers. Fathers are the spiritual leaders of their households. That's an incredible responsibility. And that's not something that we should just be like, oh, I don't want to do that. No, we should be excited about that. We should be encouraged and like, let's do this. I can't wait to share with my children the things of God, the way of the Lord. And I'm going to do what's right and just. And so the covenant relationship that Abraham had with the Lord was a servant of Yahweh, which had certain responsibilities associated with it. One was to instruct his children and household about how to follow the Lord and do what's right and just. Fathers, we have the same responsibility as Abraham did. As the spiritual leaders of our households, we are given the responsibility of instructing our children and household in the way of the Lord by doing what's right and just. So the question for us guys today is, how are we doing with the responsibility? How are we doing with that? Are we leading our families by praying together? And you're the one who's, who's encouraging that to happen. By reading God's word together, you're the one that's doing that. Attending church together, serving together, modeling how to give, and on and on the list could go as the spiritual leaders. Can the Lord trust us with his plans because he knows that we will direct our families correctly? That's important. Can he trust us? And so the first next step is for fathers today. Maybe ready to take that step, and that's to lead my children and household in the way of the Lord by doing what's right and just. Whatever changes you need to make in order that you're doing that, I encourage you to make those changes today so that you're leading your, your family in the way of the Lord, doing what's right and just. Because the Lord could trust and count on Abraham to direct his family well, we see that the Lord would fulfill his promise that we saw in Genesis chapter 12. We know that the Lord made Abraham into a great nation. We know that to be true today. We know that he made the name Abraham great as well. Most of us know that name. and we, we associate it with the Bible. And the Lord has blessed all peoples through Abraham. Are you blessed today? You need to thank the Lord, but that blessing also came through Abraham because he was faithful 
we're blessed today because of Abraham's faithfulness and that he taught his children and his household the way of the Lord by doing what was right and just. And then that came down from generation to generation to us. So we can be grateful for Father Abraham. As the friend of God, Abraham was given insider information. So we see God's righteousness and mercy are seen in the fact that Abraham is given these plans. God's like, I'm going to just extend the righteousness and mercy to Abraham. I'm going to fill him in with what's going on. And so God reveals his plan to his prophets. Abraham fits the description of a prophet because the Lord will reveal his plan to him concerning Sodom. We look back in Amos chapter 3, verse 7, and we read these words. Surely the sovereign Lord does nothing without revealing his plan to his servants and prophets. That's why Abraham falls under that description of being a prophet. In the other biblical instances, when the Lord reveals his plan to the prophets, it was so that they could warn the people. They could tell the people about the, about the coming destruction. So hopefully that they would turn from their wicked ways and follow him. Yeah, the prophets never had a positive message. It wasn't like, hey, you guys are doing great. No, it was always like, hey, you guys need to make some changes. It wasn't easy being a prophet. And so as we'll see, the Lord reveals this plan about Sodom so that Abraham can intercede for them. He will not be warning anyone about the destruction to come. He's just going to intercede. So the Lord has this internal conversation about whether or not to tell Abraham about his plans. And what we see next is the Lord telling Abraham what he has heard about Sodom. We have an external announcement. We have this internal conversation, and now we have this external announcement. He says, the outcry is so great. The first couple of things that comes to mind when you hear the word Sodom and Gomorrah, at least for me, are that God destroyed them with fire from heaven, and homosexuality was rampant there. That's the... The first two things that always come to my mind. Chapter 19 focuses on that sin of sexual immorality. But are people crying out to the Lord only about this sin? As we'll see in chapter 19, it's likely that any visitor to Sodom potentially had to ward off a crowd of men who wanted to sleep with them. And so perhaps the Lord's hearing the cries of those who have visited Sodom and have been, and have been violated. And the word sodomy is the result of the practices done in this particular ancient city. The sin of Sodom and Gomorrah is broader than just the sin of homosexuality or sexual immorality. It certainly includes that, but it's not limited to that. We see a broader view in Isaiah chapter 1, verses 10 to 31. I want to read not the whole part of that, but I want to read most of it to you today. And listen for some of the other sins that were going on in Sodom and Gomorrah. So again, I've got to make sure I start at the right, right spot for you. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Listen to the law of our God, you people of Gomorrah. The multitude of your sacrifices, what are they to me, says the Lord? I have more than enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fattened animals. I have no pleasure in the blood of bulls and lambs and goats. When you come to appear before me, who has asked this of you, this trampling of, your, of my courts? Stop bringing meaningless offerings. Your incense is detestable to me. New moon, Sabbaths, and convocations, I cannot bear your evil assemblies. Your new moon festivals and your appointed feast, my soul hates. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. 
When you spread out your hands in prayer, I will hide my eyes from you. Even if you offer many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. Wash and make yourselves clean. Take your evil deeds out of my sight. Stop doing wrong. Learn to do right. Seek justice. Encourage the oppressed. Defend the cause of the fatherless. Plead the case of the widow. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are... uh, Though they are red as crimson, they shall be like wool. If you are willing and obedient, you will eat the best from the land. But if you resist and rebel, you will be devoured by the sword, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. See how the faithful city has become a harlot. She once was full of justice, righteousness used to dwell in her, but now murderers. Your silver has become dross. Your choice wine is diluted with water. Your rulers are rebels, uh, companions of thieves. They all love bribes and chase after gifts. They do not defend the cause of the fatherless. The widow's cease or case does not come before them. Therefore, the Lord, the Lord Almighty, the Mighty One of Israel declares, Ah, I will get relief from my foes and avenge myself on my enemies. I will turn my hand against you. I will thoroughly purge away your dross and remove all your impurities. I will restore your judges as in the days of old, your counselors as, as at the beginning. Afterward, you will be called the city of righteousness, the faithful city. Do you see some of the other things that are going on in Sodom and Gomorrah? It's not just sexual immorality. They were murderers. They were murdering people. They were not rebuking those who were oppressing others. They were not defending the cause of the fatherless. They were not pleading the case of the widow. Those who were oppressed, fatherless, and widows were crying out to the Lord about their treatment in Sodom. It was injustice that had reached the ears of the Lord as well as sexual immorality. And the the Lord is attentive to the cries of the widow, the orphan, and the oppressed or the needy. We see this throughout the Old Testament. Exodus chapter 22, verses 22 to 23 tell us this. Do not take advantage of a widow or an orphan. If you do and they cry out to me, I will certainly hear their cry. Exodus chapter 22, verse 27. If you lend money to one of my people among you who is needy, do not be like a moneylender. Charge him no interest. If you take your neighbor's cloak as a pledge, return it to him by sunset because his cloak is the only covering he has for his body. What else will he sleep in? When he cries out to me, I will hear, for I am compassionate. In Job chapter 34, verse 28. They caused the cry of the poor to come before him so that he heard the cry of the needy. God knows. We see it in Exodus chapter 22, verses 22 to 23 and verse 27. We see it in Job chapter 34, verse 28. God is concerned. And in fact, it's all throughout the Old Testament that we see the the fact that we need to take care of the needy. We need to take care of the orphan and the widow. So the Lord had heard how grievous their sin was. The Hebrew for grievous means to be great, vehement, plentiful, of enormity of wickedness. It wasn't just a small amount of sin, it was a huge amount of sin. And as we'll see in just a moment and in the coming weeks, it didn't involve just a small number of inhabitants of Sodom, but rather almost every person. And because God is righteous, he has to investigate the claims he has heard. He has to see it firsthand. Now the Lord tells Abraham that the reason he's in the region is because he needs to see with his own eyes what he has heard concerning Sodom. So isn't isn't God omniscient? Isn't he all-knowing? Why would he need to come down and investigate? Doesn't he already know? 
I like what Gango and Bramer say. God's omniscience does not fall into jeopardy when he adopts the behavior of a righteous human judge who does not act until the evidence supports his judgment. This doesn't take away from God's omniscience. He's just coming down to check it out. The Lord did the same thing with the Tower of Babel. He came down to see. We see that in Genesis 11.5. Only after he saw firsthand what they were doing did he confuse their language and cause them to scatter over all the earth. God's simply doing the exact same thing here because he is righteous in his judgment. He doesn't jump to conclusions. He doesn't do things capriciously, just off the cuff. No. Man, he's doing it because this is how he works. This is how he operates. And while God is righteous in his judgment, he is also merciful toward his creation. And this is the second point this morning, individual intercession. Look at verses 22 to 33 then. This is what God's word says. The men turned away and went toward Sodom, but Abraham remained uh, standing before the Lord. Then Abraham approached him and said, Will you sweep away the righteous with the wicked? What if there are 50 righteous people in the city? Will you really sweep it away and not spare the, the place for the sake of the 50 righteous people in it? Far be it from me, or far be it from you, to do such a thing, to kill the righteous with the wicked, treating the righteous and the wicked alike. Far be it from you. Will not the judge of all the earth do right? The Lord said, if I find 50 righteous people in the city of Sodom, I will spare the city, um, the whole place, I'm sorry, for their sake. Then Abraham spoke up again. Now that I have been so bold as to speak to the Lord, though I am nothing but dust and ashes, what if the number of the righteous is five less than 50? Will you destroy the whole city because of, of five people? If I find 45 there, he said, I will not destroy it. Once again, he spoke to him, what if only 40 are found there? He said, for the sake of 40, I will not do it. Then he said, may the Lord not be angry, but let me speak. What if only 30 can be found there? He answered, I will not do it if I find 30 there. Abraham said, not that I have been, uh, now that I have been so bold as to speak to the Lord, what if only 20 can be found there? He said, for the sake of 20, I will not destroy it. Then he said, may the Lord not be angry, but let me speak just once more. What if only 10 can be found there? He answered, for the sake of 10, I will not destroy it. When the Lord had finished speaking with Abraham, he left, and Abraham returned home. This is, uh, we see the whittle bit of mercy right here. As Abraham kind of whittles down from 50 to 10, right? That's what's taking place here. The two angels begin their descent to Sodom. The Lord remains standing before Abraham. In the NIV, it says that Abraham was standing before the Lord, but the original text actually says that the Lord remains standing before Abraham. A lot of scholars are, you know, and people that were originally translating these way back and when were probably struggling with this concept of, what do you mean God is standing before Abraham? It's just that the Lord's remaining there while the other two are heading on down to Sodom. That's all it's really talking about here. So it should be, it should say <clears throat> that the Lord remains standing before Abraham. He, he doesn't leave immediately with the other two men because he knows Abraham's heart. He knows that Abraham has taken uh, the promised uh, blessing to the nations seriously. He knows that Abraham is going to intercede for the people in the valley of the Dead Sea. Now, I'm using the terminology of the Dead Sea Plains and the valley of the Dead Sea on purpose. We normally only refer to Sodom and Gomorrah, don't we, as what's taking place here. But as chapter 19 will show us, it was the entire Dead Sea Plain, the southeast portion of it, that was being consumed. Walton says this, There are five cities of early bronze Five sites of early bronze cities on the southeast plain of the Dead Sea demonstrating that fairly large populations once existed here. 
occupied from 3300 to 2100 BC, from north to south, and then he lists the names, um, the potential Sodom, Gomorrah, Zoar, and, and the two other ones, <clears throat> with the last being about 20 miles from the first. So there's five cities. That's important. In just a moment, we're going to see why. The significance of these being five cities involved will be highlighted Matthew says his dialogue with Abraham exhibits the exceptional condescension of God who appears as a man, hears out a man, Abraham, and then ultimately saves a man, Lot. And so here, Abraham's learning about justice and God's character. Through the various questions that Abraham is posing, it seems as though he is simply trying to verify God's character. God is both righteous and merciful, so Abraham is trying to understand that balance because he's like, I can't do that. I'm, I'm incapable of being both perfectly righteous and perfectly merciful. Surely God would not kill the righteous with the wicked. That doesn't make any sense. That, that's not the character of God. God wouldn't treat the righteous and the wicked the same, right? That's just not in his character. But we see God's mercy revealed. Abraham intercedes for the people of the plains. It was more than Abraham pleading for the life of Lot and his family. Abraham is interceding for all of the people in this southeast region of the Dead Sea Valley. That's important. Listen, Abraham had relationships with these people. When they got captured by the the kings that had come from the east, and they were taking them away, Abraham goes after them with his people, and he, he, he gets Lot back, but he also gets all the rest of the people from the plain. And he, he rescues them from these other kings, and he brings them back. Abraham has a relationship with these people. He cares about them. He doesn't want them to be destroyed, but when they get back, they just go back to the same things they were doing before. And so principle two is this, the Lord is pleased when we intercede for others. And so is there a group that you know who are choosing the things of this world instead of the things of God? Have you been praying for them, interceding uh, for them before the Lord? Are you content to let them be destroyed and wiped out? Somebody just shared with me this week, and they've asked me not to share their name, um, uh, and then they're going to tell me the whole story at some point. But they, they asked me, they said, when was the last time you asked us to pray uh, for the salvation of specific people? Like, by, I said, I can't remember, but I'm going to talk about it this week again. <laughs> and they said to me, well, I want you to know, we want you to know that we were praying for several people and two of them accepted Christ recently. That's a praise. That's an answer to prayer because somebody's interceding. So I'm asking you to do it again. This morning, I want you to be thinking about people in these groups that are just choosing the things of the world. I want you to think of specific people and perhaps we need to have the Lord change our hearts and attitudes so we will intercede for others, so that we just won't write them off and let them be, or, and not be content to let them be destroyed and wiped out. Second Peter chapter 3, verse 8 tells us this, The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. He is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. Paul, writing to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 4, says this, This is good and pleases God our Savior, who wants all men to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. Ezekiel chapter 33, verse 11, tells us this, So to them, 
as sure, uh, say to them, as surely as I live, declares the sovereign Lord, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that they turn from their, way, their ways and live. Turn, turn from your evil ways. Why will you die, O house of Israel? We know God's heart. We know his, his will and his desires that no one perish, no one be separated from him. Unfortunately, we know that that's happened though. People have died in a state of rebellion against God, and they are eternally separated from Him. We need to be crying out and interceding for those that are choosing wickedness over righteousness. And that's the second next step today. And maybe you're ready to take that step, and that's to intercede for those who are pursuing wickedness instead of righteousness. And like I said, uh, if you're taking that, that step today, I want to encourage you to be specific. Don't just pray in general terms for groups of people. Choose one or two groups and pray specifically by name for those who are part of that group that God would transform them. That they would hear the gospel and respond. And then pray that God would bring salvation to those in that group. Abraham was interceding for the entire group of people in the plain. Abraham whittles down the number of righteous from 50 to 10. The number 10 could represent one family. Or as Golden Gay mentions, 10 is also the minimum number for a Jewish prayer meeting. And so uh, another scholar takes that fact as the clue to Abraham's numbers. They had started from 50 as indicating a, uh, a minion in, in each of the uh, five towns with the eventual implication that even a prayer meeting in one town could have forestalled the calamity. So if there were one family or prayer meeting group in each town then would the Lord spare the whole plain? That's what Abraham's saying. If there's just 10 people in each city, each town, the number 50 also can, can constitute half of a small city. But then why did Abraham stop at 10? Why, why did he go on? The numbers here are just incredible. I, I love when this stuff comes to light. Phillips says this, Gangle and Bramer are quoting him. Phillips suggests that Abraham had multiplied the five cities of the plain by the number of necessary witnesses in each and concluded that 10 was the bottom line. He says, and this is Phillips, there, there are five cities in the plain. In Scripture, two is the number of adequate witnesses, so it required 10 righteous people to be in the valley, else there would not even uh, be the minimum witness for God. These numbers aren't by chance. This is, like, I mean, God is, this is all orchestrated by God. 50 is 10 in each city. The 10 is 2 in each city, and that's the minimum. We can't go below that. And so these numbers are fascinating. There, there were two angels who were heading down to Sodom to see if what the Lord had heard was true. They were necessary witnesses together with the Lord. And then God's mercy is on display. Through this, we see that God is merciful. Hamilton says Yahweh can be merciful because he is righteous and just. That leads us to the third principle that God or the Lord is merciful. The Lord was willing to spare the entire Dead Sea plain if only ten righteous people were found there. The Lord would not give the Sodomites what they deserved on account of ten righteous people. That's incredible mercy. How have you experienced the mercy of God in your own life? or because of a righteous person in your life? Why don't you just dwell on that today? Can you point to a specific time or situation where you did not get what you deserved? Did you recognize that this came from the Lord? Did you thank the Lord for showing his mercy to you? 
Maybe you're ready for that third next step today, and that's just to thank the Lord for showing me mercy when I did not deserve it. The time of intercession is complete. The saddest part about Abraham's intercession is that we will see that not even ten righteous people were found in the Dead Sea Plains. The Lord leaves for Sodom, and Abraham returns home. As we just review what we talked about today, fathers, are you ready to lead your children and household in the way of the Lord by doing what is right and just? People of God, are you ready to intercede for others? And if you've received mercy, have you thanked the Lord? As a body of believers, we, we should be corporately interceding for those who are pursuing wickedness. Corporately, we should be thanking the Lord for his mercy. We need to do that together, not just individually. I want to close with this illustration. As many in Britain have reflected on the life and leadership of Tony Blair, former prime minister of the United Kingdom, stories have emerged concerning his faith. A 2008 issue of Time magazine featured one particularly moving story from Blair's past. Blair is deeply religious and most, uh, and most openly devout, the most openly devout political leader of Britain since William Ewart Gladstone more than 100 years ago. He handles questions about religion deftly. He doesn't back down. His longtime press secretary and consular, I don't know if I said that right, Alistair Campbell, remembers Blair in 1996 at a school in Scotland where a gunman had killed 16 children and a teacher. In a bloodstained classroom, Campbell asked Blair, what does your God make of this? Blair, says Campbell, stopped and replied, just because man is bad, it does not mean that God is not good. And that's, we see that here. God is both righteous and merciful. We see it played out here in this passage. We're going to see it in the coming weeks as well. And so we have to hold on to that. We, have, we may not understand it. I can't say that I understand how he can be perfectly righteous and perfectly just all at the same time and merciful. I don't understand it, but I know he is. And I trust in that. And so, as the worship team comes, just to lead in this closing song, would you just bow your heads with me as I close in prayer then? Lord, we just come to you. Thank you for your word. Thank you for what we learned through it, that you are both righteous and merciful. You do it perfectly. And Lord, I, I thank you and for the times that we've experienced your mercy, the times that we've experienced your righteousness, because it's through your son, Jesus, that we are made right with you. So now, Lord, I pray that you would move by your Holy Spirit and work. And we just ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.